at the moment we individually assess people, but once we actually gain maturity as a human race, we, won't, we will realise we don't need to do that. That we'll start looking at assessment as a collective, like are we actually being able to achieve what we need to achieve collectively? Because when people start to con contribute to something bigger than themselves, that's when I see the change starting to happen. That's when we start to move away from the individual. Equity is when kids can show what they know in their way. And at the moment, we don't let them do that. Hello and welcome to the Coconut Thinking Podcast. I am your host, Benjamin Freud. Today's guest is Joanne McKechn, who is the CEO and founder of The Learner First, an education consultancy based in Seattle, where she lived for many years. She serves on the executive team of Karanga, the Global Alliance for Social and Emotional Learning and Life Skills, and she's also the co-founder of New Pedagogies for Deep Learning. I'm so excited to have had this conversation with Joanne. She touches on so many issues that we have written about on the blog and talked about on the podcast, specifically in terms of our interconnectedness, this idea that we are connected to ourselves, to others, to the planet. I particularly appreciate that Joanne brings us back to her indigeneity. And this really relates a lot to what Jeremy Lenz talked to us about a few episodes ago and what his book, The Web of Meaning, uh, is about, which is how to bring ancient wisdom to the contemporary world. This isn't some woo-woo spirituality, as my good friend Alex Soulsby would say. This is really based not only in ancient wisdoms, but also in science. More to the point, we are thinking about changing the way assessment is conducted away from the individual and more towards the social, making it an, a process where we work collaboratively and assess as a collective. This is something that uh, I've written about and Joanne brings out very clearly and succinctly uh, on this podcast. Also, this idea of contribution. Now, I've used the word impact before, but I think Joanne's word of contribution makes a lot more sense. It probably has uh, a lot less baggage. I'll leave space now for the conversation, but I just want to say that I'm so incredibly energized by the fact that this is yet another conversation with an educator that brings in elements from all different parts of the world, all elements of our thinking, of our being. Uh, and it doesn't necessarily have to be about what goes on in the classroom. In fact, it should be more than that. It should be breaking open the classroom, both in terms of physical space, but also conceptual space. I really hope you'll enjoy the conversation with Joanne McKeggan. Well, hi, Joanne. Thank you so much for joining us on the podcast. We're really looking forward to uh, your thoughts on, um, on assessment, on how the world is uh, connected, on also um, thinking about us as part of a process and, and going back to our roots uh, and how we are uh, in time um, part of the continuum. So I'll start off the um, uh, podcast with the question that we ask all our guests, which is, who are you? What do you do? And how do you try to make a difference? O tēnākoe, Benjamin. Um, ko, ko nga tahu tuku iwi, ko nga, nga te memoi waitaha tuku hapu, ko James Lira Rawa, ko Mary Wehikori oku tupuna, ko Bruce McKicken Rawa, ko Beverly McKicken oku matua, ko Joe McKicken tuku ingaua. And what I was doing just then is I was introducing myself and letting you know which tribe I'm from, which is from Naitahu, Narimamoi and Waitaha, which are the tribes from the South Island of Aotearoa, New Zealand. And then I was giving uh, some information about my ancestors and letting you know who my parents are. And then finally I was introducing myself. Being a part Māori woman um, based out of um, Aotearoa, New Zealand, we always usually introduce ourselves in our, in our native language first. And the reason for doing that is so that we can actually really connect to who we are, connect to our cultural identity, connect to who who we belong to. 
And so our feet are firmly planted on the ground and we know who we are, we know how we fit into the world and then we know how we can contribute to firstly our people, our families. We have a word here in New Zealand called whānau which means more than family, a little bit greater than. And then that gives us a, a sense of identity, a sense of culture, a sense of who we are. And for me that's really critical. So whenever I'm speaking to anybody, if I'm doing a podcast, if I'm doing a keynote, if I'm doing anything, I always introduce myself that way. So it really just gives me that, that grounding and who I am. So when you ask me to say who am I, that's who I am. I'm more than more than what I do for a job. I'm actually part of a wider family, a whānau, and I belong to a group of people. And they're an indigenous group of people and we understand that our earth is really important. Our earth belongs to us and our earth is part of us and we are part of the earth. So for me it's really critical to when I think about education is when I say what, what do we do and what are we what's education for and what is the purpose of education. I talk about that as that you know, if you ask me for a definition of what learning is, I would say, um, you know, the purpose is, is that we remember who we are, how we fit into this world, and then how we can contribute to humanity in our own unique ways. And that's not my definition. That's that's a definition that I have gathered over the years. Um, a lot of it's based on indigenous, indigenous thinking, but also from the experiences I've had in working with multiple countries across the world. And really sort of understanding that Education is not a means to an end, it actually is everything that we do. We live and we breathe it. It's how we it's how we think together, it's how we are together, it's how we are how we be together. And it's it's a lifelong journey. You know, some people if you're American you say dipa to dipa. If you're a Kiwi, you say uh nappy to nappy. Um and it's basically from birth to death. And and in and in my situation when I think about being Maori, I, it's before birth and it's after death as well. So we think about a continuum of, of forever. Um, and so how I, how, what I do is I work with different groups of people from, from the community all the way through to system leaders, meaning ministers of education, um, and we figure out what do we really want for our children and then what do we want for our young people, uh, our youth, and then how are we going to help them to get what they need. And we're trying to figure out what are the things that are stopping us to do that and then how do we actually bypass that to make it to make a difference for our kids. And you've anticipated the question that uh, I ask all our guests, just how do you define learning? So I'll, I'll go a little bit deeper into what you what you mentioned. And, and this is quite a shift in thinking, because if we are part of a continuous process of our ancestors and, and, and the generations that will follow us, our relationship to each other, to ourselves, to the earth, that's quite a different line of thinking from the traditional way of education or the mainstream of education, which is we, we, we look at points in time, points in time for assessment, points in time for grades, uh, even the idea that school happens from five to 18. What happens when we have two worlds of, of looking at education that collide, one which is more on a continuum, the other one which is more point to point, how do we speak the same language, if we can even? Yeah, well, I think that's what we're seeing now. We're seeing the two worlds colliding and we're starting to, you know, we're starting to see that there is a real shift happening because there's a recognition that, that learning doesn't stop at school, that learning actually is for forever. And you know, when I was growing up, and this is before I really understood what, what being a Māori person meant, um, because when I was growing up, I wasn't really allowed to be Māori because um, it wasn't, it wasn't, you know, it was tried to be knocked out of us when we were you know, young. I mean, I'm an old lady now compared to, you know, um, you know our youth today, they're allowed to grow up and be who they are. Um, and, I, and what I'm seeing now is I see that that systems are trying to really understand who are the children coming into their schools. Whereas before, in the, in the system, it was just, it doesn't matter who you are, you just have to learn what we're telling you. And this is the way that the, the, way that the world is going to be. And what that, does, that never works. And as a kid, I used to say, indigenous hold the answers to the universe. 
And actually, that is the truth. They, they've been gifted the information around what the universe holds. And if we would listen, we would understand so much more about the way the world is. And what we've tried to do through the current education system, or the one that's just on its way out, is we've tried to say that knowledge is static. Knowledge is what we know, and it's finite. Whereas actually, I think what we understand through indigenous knowledge and, and um, you know, the idea that, that, that we go on for forever is that it's not static that it actually is something that ebbs and flows and we're learning as we go and we're developing as we go. And there's, there's, there's information that we're bringing in from the past that we want to take into the future and it's our responsibility to maintain that knowledge that's, that's you know, you could call it sacred knowledge or you could call it real knowledge or you could call it um, the knowledge that we need to be a good human race and to actually keep this earth alive. You know, we think about the earth as being alive that it's actually breathing and, and moving just as we are. And if we think about that, and think about that in the context of, of education as it currently is, that doesn't really make sense. So it's sort of like, how do we shift into that space to allow our kids to understand that actually, yes, the trees are, are, are living as well as we are living, part and parcel of everything. And, and this is something that I'm uh, actually, it's, it's, uh, you, you, you're touching on, uh... You know a lot of the ancient wisdoms and i just finished uh, jeremy lent's book uh the web of meaning which talks about bringing in taoism and buddhism uh into uh some of our current thinking structure and i also came across and, and these are the same themes and this is what's so um incredibly interesting same things from uh, ladonna harris comes from cherokee tribe she talk, talks about much of the same words you're saying uh using the same words relationships responsibility redistribution regeneration what is it about indigenous thinking that connects to one another even though when we think about it from a historical perspective, there was no connection, there were no connections uh, in terms of conversations. What's the common thread that brings it all together? And, and why, how maybe might we explain this, this, this connection to the natural world? Well, I think that, that that's an assumption to say that we weren't connected before. Mm-hmm. I think that's the thing, Benjamin, that, that, that we would assume that there's an assumption that we weren't connected. So if we go back to the ancient traditional knowledge, actually, where do we come from? And, you know, if we all come from the earth and we all come from, you know, we sort of talk about if, if you know, from, from my, my knowledge, if we come from the stars, if we come from the, you know, we, if, you, if you think about like the Big Bang Theory, if you want to look at it from that aspect or if you want to look at it from, you know, a Christianity aspect, if you want to look at it from an indigenous aspect, whatever, you come from, from a, a, a specific point in time. If I look at that from my knowledge, I talk about Ponamu, which is a greenstone. If we came from a spark of a star, then that formed a stone. That stone then formed the mountain, that mountain then formed the river, that river then formed the ocean, that then forms the, the earth, that, that earth then forms us. And then how do we then, how, so therefore we are all connected, we are all, so I look at the earth as my ancestor, so therefore I have to look after it. I have a responsibility and a duty to look after it. Now any indigenous person is brought up with that knowledge, that that is part of their job, is to look after it. And we think about seven generations ahead of us. So every meeting, every discussion I have, I'm thinking that there's my seven generations ahead. Am I leaving the earth in a great place for them? What happened with the with the Industrial Revolution is that knowledge was tried to be taken away from us all. And, you know, I sort of mentioned earlier that I wasn't really allowed to be a Māori woman or a wahine when I was growing up because it was sort of, you know, the, the where we had colonisation occur in our country. And, you know, a lot of our ancient knowledge was tried to be taken away from us. But, of course, it can't be when it's when it's coded into your body when that ancient knowledge is actually part of your DNA it's part of who you are and so when I talk about education is remembering who you are 
it's actually waking up and remembering that knowledge is actually within you. And so when we, when we try and force knowledge into kids that actually doesn't make any sense to them, it doesn't, help, it doesn't help them be who they are. It doesn't help them understand their identity, their ability to be um, what they can be. Um, it stops their, their natural flow of learning and of being in a, you know, some people talk about being in the flow, some people talk about being in the, you know, like, sort of, you know, going in the, the direction that you want to be in, whereas I sort of think about it that that actually, if you're, if you're learning about things that have no relevancy to you, then you switch off, you shut your body down, and, you know, there's a, I can't remember who wrote the book, but it's called The Body Keeps the Score, and um, it's sort of like, we remember things in our body if we don't deal with it. Same thing with learning. If we stuffed it in with information that has no relevancy to us, well, we've got no time to think about who we are or to remember ourselves or to do the work that we really are here to do. And the other thing about being Indigenous, we recognise we're not, we're not individuals. We're part of a greater collective whole. And, you know, that's how I sort of think about assessment too. You know, at the moment we're individually assessing, we individually assess people. But once we actually gain maturity as a human race, we, won't, we will realise we don't need to do that that we'll start looking at assessment as a collective, like are we actually being able to achieve what we need to achieve collectively? Because let's face it, when we leave school, how often are we assessed as an individual? Yeah, and, and you know, I'm so uh, glad that you pointed out my own thinking here about seeing these connections in terms of linear time and space about how we have dates and that's how people connect. But, but that just goes to show how deeply embedded this line of thinking is, because if I were to stop and think about it, I would think about, you know, we're all stardust. So there's so much that needs to happen to, 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 to shift that. And we, we get caught and we have to be mindful of that. And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to bring up this idea of collective assessment, or rather thinking of what we do as a collective, because this is something that's extremely interesting to me, this idea that we have uh, this reductionist model of looking at kids, breaking down what they can do in these, you know, these standards or these English or, or able, ability to look at persuasive writing, which, which really don't connect to one another. But then the, the, going back to this idea of challenging thinking, um, it, it will make people feel very uncomfortable to think about looking at people in groups. Because the first thing that's going to come up is a very simplistic question of, well, how do we know if they're progressing each individual and we owe them to, to families to, to work with them individual? Before we go into what that would look like, how do we start shifting people's thinking away from the individual and towards the collective? Well, I think about, um, you know, as a, as a, you know, we've gone so far down the path of me, 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 instead of we, 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 we. And if we look at the current situation of the world, how happy is everybody? How content are we with the current state of the world? How content are we with the current state of the earth? How content are we currently with the way things are? And I think we've gone as far as we possibly can with the individual way of being. I think we can't go too much further in this space because where else can we go? You know, we've got our billionaires. We've got, we've shown and we've proven that any individual person can run as fast as they can. We've shown that an individual can earn as much money as they can. So much money that it's ridiculous. We've shown that individual people have got so much intelligence that it's that they can invent some things, right? We've, we've individually shown we can do all of that. What we haven't been able to prove is that collectively we can live in harmony and go back to what actually that that we, you know, to show that we can actually create happiness. And, you know, it's it sounds like a crazy concept, but actually that's what we want to do. Every time I've worked with any country, I ask you, I ask them, what do they actually want to be? 
what do they want for their kids? Now, very few parents say to me, I want my kids to be an expert in maths or an expert in, in, in reading or an expert. They say, I want my kids to be well-rounded. I want them to be happy. I want them to be able to live a great life. I want them to be able to do, you know, be who they are. And what, what actually, so what it comes down to is firstly thinking about what does success look like now? What does success look like for who we are now? So for me, it's thinking about really sort of understanding this concept of who are we really now? You know, who are we as a, as a human race? Who are we as schools? Who are we as communities? Then I think pinpoint our purpose. Why are we really here? What is it that we really want to do with each other? And are we actually going to make any difference if we just continue down this path and figure out what do we actually want? And what does that success look like? And if, 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 if it is a test result, then I would challenge people to say, so what do you learn from doing that? You know, what, what difference has it made in your life? And then dive into what your outcomes are, thinking about, so how would it look? And, and I mean, like the four outcomes that I consistently get across every country I've worked in, and you know, some of them say, some of them say, no, that's not what we want in the start. But by the time we're sort of finished going down that pathway, it inevitably comes back to this. First one is self-understanding, self knowing yourself, who you are, how you fit. Second one is connection. How do we connect to ourselves, our being, our purpose for life, our family, our land, our, our understanding of ourselves and our connection to others. Next one is knowledge. What is the knowledge we need to know to be our very best person so we can return to the earth or can return to humanity. And last one is those competencies. What are the competencies we need to be able to activate our learning? And so those in any different culture, they seem to be the ones that really stand out from an educational perspective of what people want. Then the next thing, as I sort of say to people, so where are you currently now against that? And if you're not working towards that, then how are we going to be able to do that? And then the next one, the last, the last sort of space I say to people is, are you ready to commit to con contribution? Because when people start to con contribute to something bigger than themselves, that's when I see the change starting to happen. That's when we start to move away from the individual. So I talk about contribution, and I've got the contributive curriculum, which I use as a way to actually move people beyond who they beyond that individualistic way of thinking. So if we sort of start to say we want to move beyond the beyond the current state, we have to go outside of ourselves and support and change and help other people. And I sort of say a lot of people say, oh, let's go into schools and fix them. Let's go into a system and fix it. You know, that's like fix it, fix it, fix it, and go faster. You know. But the bottom line is, is that if schools go out into their community and work on a problem together that's a real life problem in a community, then they connect with other people. They figure out who they are through that process. They learn the content of what they need to know about for their knowledge. And they understand how to communicate. They understand how to think. They understand how to do all of those things together. That's the basis of how do you start assessment. Now, it's not started with a test. It's not started with anything else. It's started with what does success look like now? And how do we start to think about what are our outcomes? So we have to really redefine all of that before we start. Um, so, you know, and, and, and in the end, we'll be judged on how much did we contribute to the world not how much did we take from it. And I think that's the move that we've got to make. So at the moment, we're sort of, some societies are brought up to believe, okay, let's, let's accumulate as much wealth as we can. Whereas I say, you know, meaning and fulfillment is the new wealth and contribution is the only way to earn it. And that really starts to stem into, or start to move us into a whole new way of thinking. And when you live in a space where you are contributing to each other's life, then there's no need for this um, individualized assessment because you're actually, you're starting to move, it's a natural progression into 
until you start to see what happens, you start to see a need to make change, and then you learn as you you learn either in that concept of just-in-time learning or you learn because you need to learn because that's what you're going to be doing to live. And this goes back to this idea of, of ancient wisdoms of ripple. The actions that we have have ripples. Everyone's action has ripples. And that's really what matters. What, what you know doesn't matter unless you do something with it. I keep thinking about that scene in, um, in, in Castaway where, where Tom Hanks has this uh, ice skate and, and that has no value the ice skate on some island, but it's when he breaks open a coconut that it has value. So we have to transform the knowledge and the application towards something, and only then is it worth anything. But, um, and so from that point of view, um, where do we think about this idea of, of our contribution? Uh, the, the, the contributive curriculum that, that you speak about, um, do we think about um, our contributions? Do we measure it? Do we just feel it? Do we just witness it? How do we go around seeing how much contribution we have, the accumulation of wealth? Do we need to think beyond even that in terms of quantitative uh, aspects? H how do you foresee that? Well, I think, you know, at the moment, the mental health of the world is pretty shaky. And for me, contribution can be as small as getting out of bed every day, or as big as saving the oceans. So each one of us has the individual responsibility to contribute what you can. There is no right or wrong here. There is no big or small or whatever. It's your individual contribution in whatever you can. So it's like we don't all have to be the same. None of us are the same. You know, I can contribute a certain amount because I know a lot about education because I've been in it my whole life. I can contribute in that space, but don't ask me to build a fence because I can't build a fence, you know, or don't ask me to, you know, milk the cows because it's not my thing. But there's some people who are brilliant at that, and I love it that they're brilliant at that. So I want to celebrate them for that. But what's happened is we've overprivileged some sorts of learning. We've overprivileged some ways of being, and we've said that's better than other things, where it's actually not. So if I think about my life um, or if you think about a Māori marae, which is a meeting house or a place where we go as, as an Indigenous place, each family has their own sorts, each family line has their own jobs. Now, none of them are better or worse than the others. One family might be in charge of the cooking, one family might be in charge of the cleaning, one family might be in charge of the leadership, one family might be in charge of the gardens. Now, nobody is better or worse than the other. We all have a part to play or a role to play in this world to make it a good place. So contribution to me means know who you are, be really content and understand your culture, your language and your identity. So you can stand tall, you can be confident in yourself and you can then contribute what you know and you're confident to do that. How many people do you know, Benjamin, who are really clever people but are too scared to tell their story? Or, or don't want to tell their story or are so shamed or they've, they, they've been so hurt or there's been damage done or there's been, you know, they don't, they, they don't, they don't reach their potential because of so many other things that have happened to them in their lifetime. Now, that's what we don't want. We want every person in this world to be so confident about what, what they can contribute and that that's accepted. You know, we've got, you know, we've got some school systems where if the kids don't get to the point of going to university, they are absolute failures. Well, that's not true. That is absolutely not true. We know that that's not true. We've got so many success stories of other, other you know, we want kids to get an education. Absolutely. We want as many to go to university as possible. Absolutely. But I'm not going to make a child who's not going to go feel like they're a loser because of it. I'm going to give them the opportunity to be that very best person that they are. 
So that's what I'm sort of saying is, is that contribution, people sort of think about, oh, yeah, she's talking about everyone's got to be, you know, superwoman or superman and do this thing. I'm not. I'm just saying if everybody can be their very best person and then we can allow them to be their very best person and not judge them for being their very best person, whatever that may be, then we can have a healthy world. If everybody can do their very best, then we can live together in harmony. But if we keep knocking everyone down because they're not like you or me, or not like the person down the street, or not like they don't, you know, blah, 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 then it doesn't, it, we're just, we're just, we're never going to get there. And this idea of the way assessment currently is structured takes away that ability to show one's identity because it has to fit within a box and you have to show me. Equity is when children can show what they know in their way. Equity is when kids can show what they know in their way. And at the moment, we don't let them do that. We say, you have to show us in the way we want you to show us, otherwise you don't know it. And that's exactly the wrong way to do it. So for me, I talk about assessment. So I have, I, we've, got, we've developed a process called Authentic Mixed Method Assessment, which enables kids to show us at any point in time when they can do something in the way they choose to show us. Now that can be qualitative, it can be quantitative, but what we're looking for is multiple ways of showing. So they might show us in a piece of writing, they might show us in a piece of art, they might show us in a play, they might show us in a, in a scientific report. They might do two or three or four or five or six different ways of showing us. But what, the, what we're trying to do is catch them showing us. Not testing them to see if they haven't done it, but actually trying to catch them when they're doing it. And in a natural environment, not in a, not in a false environment of a, of a quiet, sit down, shut up test but actually a, a natural environment of, of is, it, is, it, is, it, is it actually, can you do this in the real world? Can you show us, can you transfer, can you go from that surface to deep in the real world, in a real life example? That's way more valuable. So, you know, I do a lot of work with um, science teachers because this is an area of fascination for me because so many kids hate science. They drop out, especially girls, they drop out really young in that area. And the reason I found out is because they have to write these great big scientific reports at the age of 12 years old. Now, when you go back and you look at the object, uh, the you know the the what's in the curriculums in most countries, it's not. They don't have to write scientific reports at that stage. What they have to do is they have to describe. They have to show. They have to state. They have to. You know, you have to actually look at what does the verb say, or you know, what does the adjective say that they have to actually do. And so what happens is, is that people are thinking we've got to make sure that they write all this stuff down, otherwise it's not real. Whereas actually that's not. If they can describe a life cycle of a butterfly, or if they can draw a picture of that, they're actually showing you and telling you what that actually looks like. Whereas we've been disadvantaging kids for years by saying, well, you didn't write a three-page scientific report on that, so you're not, you, you didn't pass it. Whereas actually we've stopped kids developing and growing in these areas of excitement and passion because we've, they, haven't, they haven't done it. They haven't written an essay or they have a scientific report, whereas actually that's, they learn how to do that sort of stuff. They learn how to write a report in English or in a different subject area. You know, it's sort of like, why, why, are, we, why are we stopping these kids doing this exciting stuff by saying, because they haven't been able to pass this test? And that it naturally uh, stifles creativity. It certainly hinders ability for higher ability thinkers or folks who, who don't think in conventional ways. It completely disadvantages them, which, which throws them out of the system. Yeah. So what I so the way I kind of do it is I have I have a, a way of thinking um, that so every time we're designing a lesson or learning experience, apart from the fact that kids have to be a part of it, otherwise it's really not about them; it's about the teacher. And a lot of teaching goes on, and not a lot of learning. That there's 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 at least an, one objective is around the academic outcomes that we have to you know, that we're really looking for the child to be successful in. So that's the knowledge piece. 
the other one, the other objective that has to be present every time is that is this helping the child get to know who they are? Or is it helping them to connect with either themselves, their family, their land, their people, their um, future? Or is, or is it helping them develop their competencies? And so there's a triad. The child, the academic outcome, and the well-being outcome, or the, you know, the contributive curriculum outcome. And around that, Benjamin, sits the family aspirations. Who do we want our baby to be? You know, who, who, these, this child's in my life are forever. I want them to be successful. So I want my aspirations to be present here too. How am I going to help? How, how am I going to be able to support this child to be the best they can be too? And parents, you know, especially in Indigenous communities, we know what we want for our kids. And, you know, a lot of schools say, well, our parents aren't interested. Well, they are. We're just interested in a different way. And this would change the way the learning is structured and certainly take it away from this linearity of you have to go to university, otherwise you will fail. And if you don't go to an Ivy League university, then you're an even bigger failure. Yeah. So, so we have like we have a group of kids here at the moment. Um, they're just they're just amazing. So they're they're working with our iwi or tribe, and um, they're going two days two days a week. They work with our strategic leaders. Uh, a couple of days a week, they go to the university, and they're paid a full time salary. And they're young people between sort of eighteen and twenty four, and they're they're from some mostly from our tribe, but some of them are from other parts of the country, and they're learning to be strategic leaders. You know, they're, 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 they're looking at it and they're doing it completely differently because we recognise that there's other ways of doing learning. You don't have to be full-time in university. They'll, they'll end up with a degree, a master's, everything. But they're partnering in a different way with the university. So what's, what I'm seeing is universities have to make change. They cannot continue doing the same thing they were doing before because if they do, they won't survive. So one of you know, like the the we have polytechnics here in in New Zealand and Aotearoa, New Zealand, and and you know I'm, I'm in discussion with them at the moment, the group of uh, a group of uh, them to sort of talk about how can we have these four outcomes that I'm talking about instilled in in at tertiary level as well, so that everybody still has that same sense of who they are, being able to travel through, because as I say, it's birth to death or and beyond before and after. One of the things that uh, I'm interested in, uh, and, and certainly I would like to, to just start thinking about this as, as a collective as well, right? Because too often we're, we, we compete with one another about these progressive ideas. This idea of telling our stories, right? So rather than having a transcript, which is so static, telling the stories of our contributions or the stories of our impact, the impact that we've had, the positive impact, how do we go about constructing these in ways that are both rich but also manageable and digestible for the person who's reading them. How can we go ahead, if it's for a university or a job, a community relation, whatever it might be, how do we go ahead presenting those stories? Well, I think firstly, we, 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 you said something earlier about time and space. Um, you know, we, we get so hung up on time and space um, or not allowing ourselves that time and space, I want to say it. You know, we think about time as being so, so important to us, right? But actually it's not because there's plenty of it. It's just that we don't think about it in that way. So for me, to hear somebody's story, we have to give ourselves time and space. Like, so before we used to sit tests to get into university and stuff, we've actually got time in that. All Think about how many hours did you spend studying for that time, that, that thing. Well, that time, how about you spend talking to your family, finding out about who you are and where you're from. What is your, what is, we, we have a, you know, we, what is your genealogy? Where did you come from? What is, what was, what was your journey to get to where you are? How can you honour your ancestors? And what do you think the journey is going ahead? What is it that you think you're here for? 
What is it that you think you can do and contribute to humanity? And spend time thinking about yourself. You know, the saddest thing I've ever done in my life, Benjamin, is when I've done, you know, when I first sort of started working in the well-being space and I started doing some, um, you know, workshops with teachers and that. And, you know, they, you know 20 to 30 year olds would be crying their eyes out because they, they said, I've just spent the last sort of 20 years in education. I don't even know who I am. You know, and I'm just like, this is just, it's just criminal what we've been doing. You know, 30 to 40 year olds, I haven't got time for this because I've got kids, young kids. I haven't got, ah, I haven't got time for this. You know, 40 to 50 year olds, yeah, I'm nearly ready to do this. My kids have gone off to college, I can just have time for myself. 60 to 70 year olds, yeah, I'm nearly ready because I can tell my principal to go away because I've got time for myself. I can do this now, right, I've got time. And 60 to 70 year olds are, yep, I'm ready, I can think about myself and have time for myself now, but I've got to go and have a hip replacement. Now I just think, what a waste of life. You know, let's, let's spend time knowing who you are. When you do your journey of self-discovery and figure out who you are, it is the most beautiful experience. Now, kids who I have met who know who they are, understand their cultural identity, and can stand tall and talk about themselves, there is nothing more beautiful. There is nothing more beautiful than that than I have ever seen in my life. When I see a kid standing tall, talking about their who they are and what they can do and where they're going in their world, that is beautiful. And, and who they are doesn't have to be at the individual. It could also be who they are as part of the community, as part of a group, as part of the earth. See, I introduced me as a person when I did my introduction to you last. My name came last. I introduced my people, my ancestors, and sometimes, mostly, I usually introduce my mountain and my river and things as well. And I talk about that first, then I say who I am. I come last on that because I'm the last on that long line of everything that came first before me. And so when we learn how to do that, it really changes our frame of mind. Whereas in the current world, if we were in the sort of, you know, in the current way things are, we're racing. I've got to get this done. I've got to get this finished. I've got to get that done. I've got to get that. You know. Whereas actually it's just slow your time down and breathe. And it's actually, it's actually just remember who you are and remember the gift you have. And then sh share those with other people. And remember that the knowledge that you have is actually important. And the gift that you've been you, born with is important. And you're part of the Karanga uh, Karang. network. Karang, Karanga. Could, could, you, could you tell us a little bit about that? And I'm specifically interested in, in how when you um, uh, work uh, uh, in social emotional learning, how, how these ideas connect, what are the points that have worked, what, what are the areas where you find challenges, just some of those, those experiences that you have uh, in those interactions. But I think, you know, when we established Karanga, it was the idea was to sort of challenge every government to move away from the sole acquisition of knowledge as the, as the whole purpose of education. So that we would move into those broader set of outcomes that I've talked about and that we would get a collective of people across the world who would be interested in doing that. What we've been fascinated with is that we've got so many people who are interested in that and there is so much work going on in that. And I think it's because the world is in such a state that they've reali we've realized that there's, it, it, education is about social, it is about emotional, and it is about learning. So we've realized that, there's, that, that that's, a, that's a really big piece, of, a big piece of education work. So what we've done is we've gathered together as many people who have that area of interest, and we've now got a really good team of people. Uh, uh, we've got an executive, we've got a steering committee, we've got people all over the world who are really contributing to the discussion around why is it important? What pieces of it work? What, what, what does work? So we've got advocacy going on, so people are becoming aware of it. We've got advocacy, we've got research. Um, I mean, we, we're still just kind of fledgling at the moment, but what we want to be able to do is to be able to look research like what works in one country, will it work in another country? Um, 
what are all the frameworks that exist in the world right now and if they you know how do they translate figuring out what works and what doesn't work and hosting different groups of people to share ideas and to share why why it's important i think there's the danger um you know the world sometimes goes academic social academic but i think this time we're, we're coming up with the balance that we recognize it's both we can't do one without the other we often say it's hard to think deeply about nothing and it's hard to be you know you know learning has to have a social aspect to it as well and i think that's one of the things we've seen with COVID is that you know the, the hardest thing around it has been that, that kids haven't been able to have that social connection for some for other kids it's been really great because they didn't need it didn't want it so so karanga has been a, an opportunity for us to explore new ways of working across countries um, look at different frameworks that people have been using and test them and see whether or not they um, have got uh, uh, new information in them um, and hear the voices of countries that we don't usually hear from. Hear the voices of nations that we uh, that usually we don't hear from. Most of the research is in the top. The, most of the research has been done in the top ten percent of the wealthiest countries in the world. So we've got ninety percent of the world who are engaged in SEL, and we've never really heard much from them. So that's the piece I really enjoy is that we're hearing stories from other countries that we don't usually hear from. Which again brings us to context, bringing us to identity. Uh, this idea of of not having this pendulum swing from 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 social emotional to academic also opens the door for the idea or the the, the realization really that that learning is a social experience and that we do it for something, not academic achievement as an end in itself. Yeah, it's kind of interesting because I was sort of sitting there the other sitting around the other day and I was thinking about it. You know, like when we didn't have schools. You know, how did the earth survive? How did we all survive? What did we do? You know, how did we learn? What was the way of, you know, and it was people used to teach each other in community what, what the skills you needed to be. So I'm not advocating going back to that because we've learned a lot by having the ability to communicate globally. But what I am advocating is, is that it's actually, why are we learning stuff that has no value for us? You know, so, so kids are just, some of them are so bored, you know, and it's just, it's like, how do, how do we actually keep kids engaged so that there's value in it? And it's in community, like, you know, we've got elderly people who, are, who don't have any connection to the world anymore, and they're sitting there by themselves with nothing to do. Engage them. You know, they love working, you know, there's, 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 there's so much we're missing out on as a human race because we've separated ourselves out into school, university, work, elderly homes, you know, it's, and it's like, that's not the way we, you know, humans need connection. So if we're talking about from birth to death, then we really should be talking about from birth to death. So one of the projects I'm involved with here is looking at setting up a pa wananga, which a pa is an olden day uh, Māori village, and we're moving a school or a kura into a pa wananga state, which is a, a village, like an old, an old style village where people will be at school, they'll be able to live there, they'll be able to have their like a village kind of style where we're, we're, we're going to have a, a trial of seeing how that works and giving people an option of, of living there as well as, as learning there in, the, in a traditional sense of Māori but with, the, with modern technology. So it's not like throwing everything out, it's like keeping it all together but still but, you know, using the best of the both worlds that we have. And this goes back to the idea of just-in-time learning that you brought up. When you need to know something, you go learn it. When you want to share, you learn it so that even children could teach 
adults, if we even want to make that distinction about whatever it is that they know. And then, and then we move intergenerationally in this experience of learning, which also flattens out, you know, the, the, the hierarchy of age, which, which again, uh, allows us to connect more. Yeah. So one of the, one of the things that I have done since I've been moved back to New Zealand, I was living in the States for the past sort of 19 years and, um, I've, I've set up a trust and it's called Kia Kotahi Ako, which means as one learning. So Ako is, uh, is almost like reciprocal learning. So you learn together. And one of the, one of the um, projects that we're working on is that we're creating a space for um, our elderly to be, uh, youth to be, and uh, babies to be. And then we're not giving them any boundaries. We're saying, just be together and see what emerges. And the idea of that is to allow, allow community to come back together and see what we can learn from that because there's so many things that we've taken away from our community and it doesn't it's not it's an it's not enabled us to actually grow together anymore so i want to see what would happen now if we actually give community space again um, because i sort of think a lot of learning happens in the liminal space the space in between and when you take that out and make people do things you don't have that time to actually think about what what's important and you know you know i asked one of the uh education director said, what's the biggest issue you have at the moment? And she said to me, our kid's not wanting to stay in school. And I'm thinking, you know, it's our, it's our, our people who, our elderly people who can actually could probably convince them to stay in school. Because they've got the life experience, they can tell their stories, they can engage them in like what's, what's you know, life, real life things. So it's just like doing, doing a few of those kinds of, ex, not experiments, but like giving opportunities for people to learn in different ways, just to see if it's to see if that is another way of like pr providing a, providing space for learning to occur, in the whole you know giving back cycle, so people can have opportunities. So then it's rethinking what time is in terms of learning because we're going beyond the generations, and of course time and space are are you know if you are are the, are the same thing. So we're opening it beyond the building, and learning happens all the time anywhere, which brings us back to being closer to the natural world as well and to the community and to ourselves. I mean, it's, it's, it's not a fundamental shift, it's going back to what was. I mean, our earth is, is, our earth is, is hot, you know? I mean, it's, it's literally hot. And, you know, we're looking at all the fires that are going on right now. We're looking at the floods. We're looking at all of those sorts of things that are happening and, and, and we can change that. You know, it's only humans who can change it right now. And I think that if we actually decided to care enough, we could do something pretty quickly. And we've got, it's the youth who are telling us we have to hurry up. And if we could listen to them to, and listen to our earth and actually make the changes we need to make and do that together, instead of worrying about some of the things that we're worrying about, focusing on what actually is important, which is learning how to live together, which is learning how to be in, 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 on living on the earth together in a healthy way. And that's regenerative education, it's regenerative lifestyle, it's, it's circular economies, it's all of these things that we're actually starting to move to, which, is, which, which, which Indigenous hold a huge amount of knowledge about. And it's just being able to talk openly with, with people about how do we actually get there. And I think, you know, I, I was probably, if you'd asked me to talk like this 10 years ago, I would have said no. I would never have been courageous enough to speak about this, but I think it's time. Um, my, my whispers from my waitaha, elders and grandparents is to hurry up and speak now because the world needs us to speak. So it's, um, it's time to talk about this and, and it's time to share this knowledge because we have to, we haven't got time not to. You bring up the word regeneration and you didn't bring up the word sustainability. Do you think that there's a contradiction or complementarity between regeneration and sustainability? 
And I bring this up because everybody's talking about the sustainable development goals, which, which is a, a whole other issue. Well, I, I prefer, uh, I don't know, I've never actually thought about that. It's a good question to ask. Um, but so for me, regeneration is really critical because that is the, that's, that we help things to regenerate. And sustainability, I, don't, I actually hadn't thought about that. Um, but regeneration is the word that I often use because to me it's like, it's, it's, I think it's because I think of generations. So I think about regenerating as in that we're continuing to generate all of the things that have gone on in the past and to continue them on. Sustainability, to me, I guess I think about sustainability as sustaining what we currently have, and I don't actually want to do that right now. I'd rather, uh, <coughs> I'd rather move into regenerating the, the, the method ancient methodologies as well as you know using some of the current things we have. Which is again a cyclical way of thinking uh, rather than a linear way of thinking. Yeah, and and, I'm, and I think that's probably, um, you know, and, and a lot of our kids who are who are sort of considered ADHD and considered to you know like off the planet and things like that, they're actually they they don't see time and space. They see it in a very different way too. They're actually quite, and so if, we, if you start talking to them about this kind of stuff, they will have a very, they will have the same conversation that I'm having with you. And you know, you, you can sort of like they they don't see things in a linear way either. And it's actually once you start having these kind of conversations with them, you're probably not going to see them as um, needing so many so much medication. Listen, um, John, I I, re I really appreciate your time. Um, I'm going to open it up to to, to two questions. Um, uh, one is, what are you reading right now? What am I reading right now? I'm reading um, a book called Song of the Stone by Barry Brailsford, who it's about my, um, it's about my tribe, uh, the Waitaha people who came to New Zealand, um, or Aotearoa New Zealand, in uh, probably the, I'm not sure which century it was, I, have to, I don't want to say this otherwise I'm going to get it wrong, but um, a very, very long time ago. So they were one of the first tribes that came to New Zealand, and um, it talks about the stone, the story that I sort of said at the beginning about the spark and why the stone is so important. And he actually took, uh, he's, a, he's a, a Pakeha, a white person, who took the stone, one of the stones from Aotearoa, New Zealand, and he took it on a journey around America and he met with some of the um, native First Nations people in, in America. And he, he had us, he was connecting, reconnecting back with the people from there. So that's why when you talk about connection about from different indigenous groups, we're all connected. So um, that story is really quite relevant to our conversation today because it's about connecting the dots between the different places around the world. So when I think of my indigenous cousins, I think of the I think of them as cousins. I think of them as people who are we're close to. The second question I'll ask you is really what's on your mind? What are some of the the, the thinking that you're going that you have uh, actions, projects, uh, hopes, uh, motivations? How are you going to contribute uh, or you see yourself do that? Yeah, um, my, hope, my hope at the moment is, is that our, um, our whole society is, is, is brave enough to, to make some of these changes in the education system. I think COVID was, um, gave us an opportunity and especially in Australia and New Zealand where we are, I would say, educationally advantaged because our school system didn't have to shut down. So we've only had a couple of weeks um, here, there and everywhere that we've actually had to shut down. So I think that there's been an opportunity um, and I would like to think that we can make the most of that and utilise the the understandings of more than one way of thinking. And I think if we are brave enough to do that, then we've got hope. I think if we get stuck in the dominant races way of thinking, then we're in trouble. So for me, it's my hope is that this way of thinking, this this 
the ability to hear more than one way of living that we're starting to see coming through and the voices are getting stronger, that, that people will not be frightened of that because there is room for every single person to have their say, to have a voice and to not feel that they don't belong because every single one of us belongs on this earth. It's just finding our place and nobody needs to be more important than anyone else. Just find your place. Robert, thank you so much. Appreciate it. This has been the Coconut Thinking Podcast. I'm your host, Benjamin Ford. Thank you so much for listening. Please check us out on www.coconut-thinking.design. There you'll see our blogs, some videos, some articles that we published elsewhere. And of course, links to this podcast, which you can hear on your favorite platforms. We'd love to hear your comments. We'd love to connect with you on LinkedIn or just an email that shot to us. And of course, we're open to uh, any conversation on Zoom with anyone who would like to push the boundaries of thinking about education, of thinking about the classroom and learning, and really trying to break the rules in many ways or ignore the rules, just move beyond the rules uh, about what school is, what learning is, and making it an intergenerational experience that is linked to ourselves, others, and the planet. Anyways, www.coconut-thinking.design, and we will see you on the next episode. Bye-bye.